blinking lights mean? Can you hear me now? Yes? Good? All right, awesome. Okay, so Jesus is going to prepare his disciples not just to, to serve him, but to suffer for his sake. So Matthew chapter 10, we'll be looking at verses 16 through 25. Let's pray, and then we'll dive right in. Father, thank you so much for the privilege of being here. It is a joy for us to be in your house together. It is a joy for us to give uh, of our offerings, uh, that which you've given to us. We give back a portion to you because you are the source of all good things. And you provide for us, often uh, bountifully and generously. Father, we want to now give back to you uh, a portion of our our time here to, to give to you our hearts and our minds and our attention as we turn towards the very words of your Son. Uh, Jesus, thank you that you have prepared us for what it means to be a follower, a disciple of Christ. Um, It is full of blessings, but it is full of challenges, even hostility from the world around us that doesn't understand you and therefore doesn't understand us. So teach us, we pray, by the power of your Holy Spirit, um, about the nature of discipleship as you prepare uh, the twelve and you prepare us. Uh, to suffer and to, to, to face hostility for your namesake. We pray it in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. So many of you know that uh, I had the privilege of attending a university down in central Texas called Texas A&M University. And uh, it, I, I was privileged to, to do so, to go to a university with such a rich uh, history. Uh, and not only history, but a, a university that was really known for its many, many traditions. In fact, uh, people on the outside would uh, maybe say, I don't know, that's, that's like a cultish kind of a place because we had so many traditions, uh, and, I, and I really enjoyed that. Um, some of my favorite traditions uh, were, uh, so at football games, uh, when the football team score, if you brought along a date, then you score. You get to kiss your date. That was a, that was, that was a pretty, pretty cool tradition. Uh, traditions like uh, bonfire. So uh, the week before uh, our big annual game with the University of Texas, we would make a massive bonfire and burn it. Because who doesn't like bonfires? But it was symbolic of our burning tradition to beat our arch rivals. Um, midnight yell was another great tradition. And so 50,000 plus pack Kyle Field uh, the Friday before a home football game to yell our heart out in preparation for yelling our hearts out at the football game the next day, and so on and so forth. The point is not to share with you these traditions, but to say that at a university like that, uh, um, they really worked hard to create a culture to help you understand as a student that you, once you become an Aggie, you are part of something bigger than yourself. Right, there's something bigger than yourself, and there is a tradition there that goes way, way back, and you are one in the line of that particular tradition. You know, the same is true at West Point over in New York. In fact, uh, all of the graduates and cadets at West Point, they often refer to them as the long gray line. It's because when you see them lined up in their uniforms, right, their gray uniforms, from uh, the very newest cadet uh, all the way back in history to the very oldest cadet, it would form a long gray line. And what they were doing at West Point is they wanted to impress upon the cadets that they were a part of something bigger than themselves and that a tradition of what it means to be a West Point cadet was handed down to them. 
Friends, you could say that we as Christians, as followers of Christ, have certain traditions, if you will. And by that, I don't mean church traditions or or denominational traditions. I mean that there is an ancient tradition that Christ passed on both to the twelve apostles and then to every subsequent Christian generation that would come after them. And friends, it is is a tradition that we here in America and American Christianity are sort of not familiar with, but it is the tradition of suffering. It was Tertullian, the early church father, who said that the seed of the church is the blood of the martyrs. And much of our history has been this way. See, at West Point, They're called the long gray line. Friends, you could say that that for Christians, uh, you could call us the long red line because church history is marked with the blood of the saints. Now let me ask you a question. Where did that tradition begin? Where did that tradition first begin? Well, of course, that tradition first began with Jesus, right? Uh, With Jesus. But it not only began with his own suffering as our Savior. But it even began before that as Jesus here in Mark chapter 10 teaches his 12 apostles and teaches uh, uh, disciples yet to follow what it means to be a follower of Christ. We've seen in verses 1 through 15 in a quick review here, Jesus prepared them for service. We saw the master in verse 1 summon his men in verses 2 through 4 to send them out on his mission in verses 5 through 6, which consisted of a message and a ministry, verses 7 through 8, in which he promised he would provide the money, verses 9 through 10, and he gave them the method that they should use as they went out to preach the good news of the kingdom in the cities of Israel, verses 11 through 15. Now, now in chapter 10, uh, Jesus' message in preparation for them and for us shifts. It, it takes a turn for not the worst, but for the harder, if you will. Because in verses 16 through 42, we see Jesus preparing them not just for service, but for suffering. And so what we'll see in, in verses 16 through 25, Jesus describes their foes. That is, the, um, the antagonist that they should expect. In verses 26 through 39, he addresses their fears. Thankfully, next week we'll see him address their fears and our fears. And then in verses 40 through 42, he speaks about their followers. That is, the few who actually receive their message, the reward that they will receive. So this morning, we'll focus on the first section here, verses 16 through 25. We will take a look at the apostles' foes. Now, before we jump into the section, uh, we need to sort of lay a foundation here, point something out up front. Because as you read verses 16 throughout the, uh, the rest of the chapter, it becomes very apparent that Jesus is going to describe events for these 12 men that would not take place in this present mission trip, if you will, to the cities of Israel. Rather, it would take place later, after his resurrection, after the birth of the church, as they went out, uh, being his witnesses, sharing the gospel, that the things that he's going to speak of would happen then. In other words, the verses that we're seeing are prophetic. They are predictive, if you will, uh, for the lives of the twelve apostles. And we see the things that Jesus is going to say will happen to these men uh, work their way out in the, uh, the book of Acts, if you will. 
So, let's begin in verse 16 with the Lord's exhortation. First of all, we get the Lord's exhortation. Then we'll see some expectations that he will have. And then we will see his example. The Lord's exhortation, starting in verse 16. Jesus continues, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Have a good day, right? Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. See, friends, Jesus begins here in verse 16 with a rather stark example to help us see the nature of the response that these 12 apostles and any Christian uh, should expect when we are sent out into the world to do his ministry and to give his message. What are we like, Jesus says? What's the image? We are like what? Tell me. Sheep among what? Wolves. Okay, so it doesn't take a genius to figure out what Jesus is saying here. He's saying to be a disciple and to go out on his mission with his message is to be uh, sent out into a dangerous place, right? The, the people that you're going out to share the message with aren't sometimes exactly friendly. Friends, here we have Jesus who is called, uh, he calls himself the great shepherd of the sheep, right? Here Jesus, who is the great shepherd of the sheep, is leading his sheep, but, but friends, not to green pastures, but he's leading us into a pack of wolves, Do you see that? He's preparing us. And because of this reality, he says, be as shrewd as snakes and be as innocent as doves. That is, be both prudent and discerning. You need to be shrewd by avoiding conflict, if at all possible, but but be innocent. Don't be the one causing unnecessary conflict. And so, friends, as from the gate, if you will, in verse 16, we see our first truth for training. Disciples of Jesus should expect hostility. This is so abundantly clear from the text. Friends, to be a Christian is to expect hostility. Here in the American church, we have somehow been fooled into thinking that the culture is going to love us and that everybody who is not a Christian is somehow going to be friendly to us and and going to receive our message. Friends, Jesus tells us quite the opposite. Hostility and suffering and persecution are not abnormal. It's not a curse from God. It's not out of the norm of what is to be expected. Friends, it is part and parcel of normal Christianity. Friends, what we have experienced in our country for the last 200 plus years as Christians, generally speaking, historically speaking, is not normal. It's just not normal. It's normal for us because we live here by God's grace. But it's not normal, historically speaking. Friends, it's not abnormal for us to be marginalized. It's not abnormal. It's not abnormal for us to have a target on our back, whether it be for litigation or for cultural pressure. It's not abnormal to be made fun of on the late night TV shows or by our friends or our families. Friends, disciples of Jesus should expect this. So the question that I have for you and for me is do you expect it? Do you expect that? Is that a part of what you expect as a follower of Christ? And if it's not, then friends, you are deceiving yourself. Because to be a Christian is to be, in Jesus' words, to be like sheep among wolves. Uh, on the screen behind me, there's a piece of, uh, of Roman graffiti. In fact, it was sort of scratched 
into a plaster wall in the city of Rome uh, near Palatine Hill, which is where all the ancient uh, sort of Roman, thing, when you think Rome, the Colosseum, and all of the ancient stuff, this is there. It's called the Alexamenos Graffito. Uh, you can take a look. There's two images. The one on the left is the actual one. The one on your right is sort of a rendition to help you see it more clearly. The image seems to be a young man worshiping a crucified, donkey-headed figure. In the Greek inscription there to the left approximately translates this way. Alexamenos worships his god, indicating that the graffiti was apparently meant to mock a Christian probably named Alexamenos. Friends, it has always been true of Christians. It will always be true of Christians. It is the Lord's exhortation. Next, we move from Jesus' exhortation in verse 16 to three expectations. To three expectations in verses 17 through 23. Three things that Jesus says that we can expect. One, we can expect enmity. Enmity, hostility. Number two, we can expect enlightenment. Enlightenment. And number three, we can and should expect ourselves to endure. Endurance. Enmity from religious and state leaders, enlightenment from God, and endurance from the saints. Let's take a look, starting in verse 17. The first thing Jesus says to expect is that we should expect enmity. He says, be on your guard. Be on your guard. Why? You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. So here, Jesus sort of tells us who the wolves are going to be, right? You're going to be like sheep among wolves. Well, who are those wolves? Well, for the twelve, they exist, existed uh, two different groups, if you will. First of all were religious leaders, their own Jewish countrymen. Notice what he says, local synagogues, and you will be flogged uh, in the synagogues, and you'll be handed over to the local council. So there will be a persecution that will come from their own family members, from, from their fellow Jews, religious persecution, if you will. But then notice the second group uh, is, is sort of civil persecution, right? You'll be handed before governors and kings as witnesses to them. Again, friends, there's no evidence that when the, the twelve went on out on this particular mission that they faced anything like this. And so, but when you keep reading and you come to the book of Acts, what happens to these twelve? This, right? They are persecuted by their fellow Jews. They are flogged. We see that in Acts chapter 5. And then they are uh, handed over to the Roman state. And by doing so, they have this incredible opportunity to speak the gospel to uh, a lost and dying world. Friends, isn't it, isn't it ironic and amazing that one of the avenues for the Christian witness is our suffering? You see that? One of the ways that God has ordained for us to be his witnesses is through suffering that we receive for being Christians. We see in Acts chapter 27, Paul made it all the way to Caesar himself, right? And he was a witness, uh, quite literally, to the, um, the, the capital of the known world. And it leads us to our second truth for training. Disciples of Jesus use enmity as opportunity. We use hostility as an opportunity to share Christ and why we suffer for him. Now, you and I may never be brought to trial 
for our faith, although if you ask uh, the baker up in Oregon if that's the case, he may have a different story. Friends, we live in a culture now, increasingly so, when Christians will be brought to trial, and we will be fined for exercising our religious faith. We are in that place currently. And if you don't think we are, you've been living with your head in the sand. That is the culture in which we live. But friends, it is an incredible opportunity for us to share uh, not only our morals and our beliefs, but the fact that we love Christ and faithfulness to his word more than we love our money and more than we love our freedom and more than we love our comfort. It is an opportunity. So what type of enmity do we normally face? It could be a simple snicker when you speak of your church or of God or of Christ. It could be certain people just don't want to be your friends because they see you as a religious fanatic. It could be a war of words on Facebook because you posted something about your morality or your political view or your ethical stances that your faith compels you to make. And, and, and Twitter or Facebook blows up, right? That happens sometimes. It could be that you're not allowed to be a foster parent here in the state of Illinois because, friends, to be a foster parent now in the state of Illinois means that you must consent to that particular child if they want to have a sex change or a gender re-identification. That's law here in Illinois. Friends, it's difficult sometimes to be a Christian in the world that we live in, but it is a wonderful opportunity because we can let people know why we are suffering. The English reformers, there were many of them, but uh, two of them in particular, uh, Cranert and Ridley. As the story goes, they were put on on trial for their faith uh, in Jesus Christ and for their uh, their lack of uh, uh, renouncing sort of the, the Catholic doctrine, and they were burned at the stake. And one of them, as they were burning and the flames were rising, said to the other, uh, be, be of good courage, my, bro- my brother, for this fire shall light a-, a fire that will spread throughout all of England. And friends, that's exactly what happened. Because of their death, because of their martyrdom, the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Protestant Re- Reformation sort of took birth and spread throughout England like a wildfire. See, we face enmity. Jesus says we will, but it is an incredible opportunity. Jesus says we should not only expect enmity, but he says, thankfully, we should expect enlightenment. Jesus didn't just expect enmity to come against us, but the Holy Spirit's enlightenment to come upon us. Take a look in verse 19. But but when they arrest you, do not worry what you will say or how you will say it. At that time, you will be given what to say. For it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. So friends, in those moments of fear, when the disciples are being brought before their Jewish brethren, and when they're being brought before Caesar, if you will, and in our moments of fear, what are we to lean upon? I mean, I mean, where are we to go in those moments for our response? Thankfully, Jesus says that we can lean on spirit-given words. We see it numerous times in the defenses that the apostles and others gave in the book of Acts. For example, uh, in Acts chapter 4, Peter, right? He, he heals the lame man. He's brought before the Jewish leaders. And in verse 8, he speaks with spirit-given words. Then Peter, it says, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, and he gives a defense, and he preaches the gospel. The same is said of Peter a little bit later in Acts chapter 6. Remember, remember that guy, the first Christian martyr by stoning? 
while he gave his defense, we read in verse 10 of chapter 6, but they could not stand up against the wisdom that the Spirit gave him as he spoke. And so we see these things happening, and it leads us to yet another truth for training. Disciples of Jesus not only can use enmity as as opportunity, but we can respond to enmity supernaturally. Friends, where do you go when your friends are making fun of you at work or in the locker room for your faith? Where do you go? How do you respond? Don't react. Don't speak from your own wisdom. Pray. Pray, asking the Spirit to give you words and a heart to respond. When you're being attacked on Facebook, how shall you respond? Pray for the Spirit-led words. This is a wonderful promise for us here, that while Jesus does expect enmity to come into our lives, he also promises Spirit-given enlightenment. And friends, how desperately we need it in those moments. We are to expect enmity and enlightenment. But third... Jesus says that he expects us to endure. Notice verses 21 through 23. He expects endurance. So when the, sh- when the sheep are, are scared and when the wolves are um, crowding in- around us and are encircling us and they're ready to a- attack, what does Jesus expect the sheep to do? He expects us, he says, to stand firm, to endure both in our profession of faith and in our endurance of the persecution that is at hand until it's done, until the end, until it is completed, either in this life or by death. Notice verse 21. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Friends, can you imagine a world in which that happens. Uh, it doesn't happen very much, I don't think, in America, but if you are a Muslim Christian, friends, this is reality for you. This is reality for you. The imagery um, is that of standing firm. Notice, you will be hated by everyone, verse 22, because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. This idea of standing firm is meant to convey the idea that despite whatever outside pressures are pressing in against us, whatever pressure there might be for us to give up our faith in Jesus or to stop our mission or to deny our Savior, we are not to be shaken or moved one inch. That the feet of our faith, if you will, are to be firmly planted in the ground so that no amount of pushing or pulling will cause us to sway from our faith in Jesus. Uh, I played a game when I was a child. You probably did as well. Maybe your children play this game on occasion. It's a very simple game. It's called King of the Hill. You know the game that I'm speaking of? It's very simple. When I was a child, we were, uh, no, I was about 10 or 11. My mom and dad built, uh, built a house. And so we would regularly go out there to see what, what was happening. And a, a part of, I guess, building a house was that there were large piles of stuff often uh, around. So there was piles of dirt and there were piles of rocks, maybe other things. I don't know, but I remember the dirt and the rocks. And, uh, we enjoyed those piles. And in fact, on occasion, my parents would let me invite my friends to come play with me, and we would play King of the Hill. And how do you play King of the Hill? Well, it's very simple. There's one king, and he's the king of the hill, and he is where? He's on top of the hill, and the whole object of the game is to stay king of the hill, right? And the object of 
of the game for the other players is to what? Is to become king of the hill. And you become king of the hill by knocking off the king of the hill, right? And so you push and you pull and, well, other things, right? But you get the point, right? It's sort of a rough and tumble game. And so we, we realize that the way that you stay king of the hill the longest is you have to have a nice wide base, right? You, 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 you kind of spread your legs apart and you bend the knees nice and good, sort of like in a prepper, in kind of football stance, right? Because people will push you and they'll pull you, right? But you have to stay firm. You can't relent, right? Friends, this is what Jesus is calling us to do spiritually. He's causing us to plant our, our feet deeply in our faith. As we continue in verse 23 and 24, Jesus tells them that when they face such opposition um, in one city, go to the next, flee to the next. And then in verse 24, I think Jesus looks even, even further to the future even further than their lifetimes, to yet a future generation of yet-to-come Jewish evangelists that will spread the gospel to the Jewish people in the, the, the nation of Israel at the time preceding Jesus' return. Notice what he says in verse 23. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. Truly, I tell you, you will not finish going through the, the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Friends, we see another truth for training here from verses 21 through 23. Disciples of Jesus endure in their profession. That's what it means to be a Christian. You endure in your faith. A mark of true uh, Christianity is, is our stalwart continuation and our profession of faith throughout our lifetime, despite circumstances, whatever they may be. Friends, let me be clear. It doesn't matter if you or someone you knew prayed a prayer when they were eight, or if they walked an aisle, or if they made a profession of faith that they were a Christian, if they later denounced that faith. What does Jesus say in John chapter 8? In John chapter 8, Jesus says, We are his disciples if we do what? And I quote, If, we con- if you continue in my word. If you continue in my word. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, spells out the gospel. He says, this is the the, the most important thing. Let me remind you of the gospel, right? It is first and foremost, and and this is what it is. He says, we are, this is the gospel that, that they received, that they stand firm in. He says, this is the gospel that they are saved by. And then, there's this caveat. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you. In other words, those things are all true of you, Corinthians, and those things are all true of you, professing Christians, right? You are, uh, you, you stand in the gospel, you've received the gospel, you are saved by the gospel if you hold fast the word, the gospel, which I preached to you. And, and then notice this, these are scary words. Unless, unless you believed in vain. Paul's not setting out some hypothetical here. He's saying, unless you believed in vain. Beloved, there is such a thing as believing in Jesus in vain. That is, it is not genuine faith. It's not genuine faith. See, the fruit of that root is not standing firm to the end. Friends, friends, beloved, being a disciple of Jesus means we endure in our profession of faith to the end. 
He says, expect enmity, expect enlightenment, inspect endurance. And then notice we close with the Lord's example himself. With the Lord's example himself. Verse 24, the student is not above the teacher, nor a servant above his master. So let me just ask a quick question here. Jesus is using an illustration, right? Who is who? Who is the student and the servant in this context? Jesus' followers, right? Who is the teacher and the master? Jesus, okay? The student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. Verse 25, it is enough for students to be like their teachers and servants like their masters. Okay. So there's a teacher and there's a master. It's Jesus. There are students and there are servants. That's us, right? Professing Christians. He says it's enough for us to be like them. In other words, a student does what he or she sees their teacher doing, right? And a slave does what he or she sees her master doing or telling them to do. Now notice, if the head of the house, referring to himself here, if the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, prince of demons, how much more the members of his household. Jesus is referring to an incident that had already occurred. Jesus did a miracle by the power of the Spirit, and the Jewish leader says, uh, no, that's Satan doing that, not, uh, not the Holy Spirit, right? And they called him uh, Beelzebub, right? So Jesus says, if they call me slanderous names, then what? How much more will they do it to whom? To us, right? Jesus' point here is, is, pretty, is pretty simple, right? Persecution should not surprise us. If they treat Jesus that way, why do we expect them to treat us any different? Friends, the type of Christianity that some, that some people, some churches are being purported where it's just like happy and life's going to be easy and you might get rich and you might be, you might be blessed and all, all, everything's going to be smooth, right? And it's going to be great. Is that what Jesus says? No, that's not what Jesus says. You might be blessed. Life might be good. But, but what does he say? He says, it's foolishness to go into being a disciple of Jesus and to think that the world will treat us differently than they treated him. Did you get that? It's foolishness. So friends, why do we think that way? Why do we think that we will be treated any better than they treated him? What happened to Jesus? He died on a cross publicly and painfully and much more. Truth for training, finally. Disciples of Jesus should not expect better treatment than Jesus received. Why should we as Christians expect any better? If they slandered him, then guess what? They're going to slander us. Why are we surprised? If they call us ignorant or bigoted or hateful or stupid, and the list goes on and on. All you have to do is watch late night TV, and then you'll see it. Um, Should this surprise us? No. They treated him that way. They're going to treat us that way. If they didn't understand him, why are we surprised when they don't understand our morals? When they don't understand our beliefs? When they don't understand the decisions that we make? Uh, Friend Amy Carmichael has written a poem, and it's entitled, No Scar. 
And it's as if Jesus is saying this, right? So, so here it goes. Hast thou no scar? No hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I heal them, hail thy bright ascendant star. But hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archer spent, leaned against a tree to die and rent. By ravenous beasts that compassed me, I swooned. Hast thou no wound? No wound, no scar, yet the master shall the servant be. And pierced are the feet that follow me. But thine, thine are whole. Can he have followed far who has no wounds and no scar? That's what Jesus is saying. So, in closing, what can we expect? Jesus is preparing the twelve. And he's preparing us for what it means to be a part of normal Christianity. We've seen his expectation, excuse me, his exhortation, right? What is his exhortation to us? I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. In the midst of that, what is his expectation? His expectation is that we should be on guard, right? We should expect enmity. We should expect enlightenment. Don't worry about what to say, Jesus says. And we should expect endurance, And he expects endurance of us. To the one who stands firm to the end, they will be saved. Friends, as we move on from the apostles' foes, next week we will see their fears. Because I don't know about you, but if I take these words seriously, I'm scared. That's natural. We're scared of this. The twelve had to be scared when they they heard that. So, So what are we to do with our fears? We'll come back next week and we'll see Jesus address those fears one by one. Let's pray. Father, this is a hard word from your son. This is not going to show up on TV. These kind of words are not uttered on cable. But Father, they're uttered in your word. And they're on the very lips of your son. And so we, we bow before them and we heed them. Because your son is no mere man. He is the divine son of God. He is the one sent to pay the penalty for our sins. He is the one who arose and defeated death in great power and promises that, hey, even if you die, you will live. Because we serve a resurrected God. And we know that whatever it is that we may face, may it be um, uh, just sort of the jeer of the crowd or a friend who turns away from us, or family members that we experience strife with, or if we literally die for our faith, that you are a powerful God and that you rose from the dead and you promised that we too will have eternal life and even resurrection life if we stay firm to the end. So God, do that work of firming up our faith, we pray, because we here in America, and I'm included, we are an anemic church. Oh God, Firm our feet, we pray in Christ's name. And God's people said, amen. See you next week, guys.